Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. Hopefully you're doing well. And this is the podcast where we have conversations with those in the industry and outside the industry to help this industry bridge the gap from where we are today to where we're going in the future based on all different perspectives. And this week, we've got one of the best guests there is. Matt Sonnen's got such a wealth of experience. He's one of the best thought leaders in our space. He's got experience at Merrill Lynch. He's got experience running a fast-growing RIA. He's got experience helping to do M&A with Focus Financial. And now he's running his own firm, PFI Advisors, and just launched the COO Council that is going to help firms business-size their business. But Matt and I talk about everything from his upbringing, what got him into wealth management, from Van Halen to Mark DeBersion. And then also, what do advisors need to do to start to create a consistent client experience? And then finally, we talk about when does someone go to see a financial advisor? When should someone go talk to a financial advisor? A great conversation that covers a range of topics. You're going to be intrigued from the moment it starts, and we're not going to wait another minute. Here's to the episode with me and Matt Sonnen. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Matt Sonnen is here joining us. Matt, thanks so much for taking some time to join us all the way out in California, I think, right? How are you doing today? Weather's probably beautiful as always in Southern California. It's a beautiful day. We're spoiled to death here. I mean, we're, we're close to the beach. By Southern California standards, oh, God, you live so far from the water, but we're close to the beach, so it's probably 72, as always, here. <laughs> Gosh, it is beautiful weather out there. I mean, I have a lot of good buddies that went, when I went to Arizona State that, that lived in Southern California, so I spent a lot of time there. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing weather, I got to say. I got to say. And you've been out there. Have you been out there your whole life? I did a two and a half year stint in New York City when I worked for Focus Financial. But other than that, yeah, my, my wife was raised in Ventura County, just a little bit north. And, and I grew up out by Palm Springs. And then after graduating from UCLA, I've been kind of in the, the beach area since 90, I guess I moved down here in 1998. And then, yeah, two years, two and a half years in, in New York. And, and then other than that, yeah, we wanted to come back. That was one of the reasons to start PFI was just, just, we, we were uh, two kids in, in, in a shoebox in Manhattan. We said, you know, we got to get back to California. So my wife's more entrepreneurial than I am. She said, I was more about moving. <laughs> we got to figure out a way. Let's go find a job in uh, Southern California. And she said, no, let's start our own thing. So that was just the, the move back to Southern California was one of the big drivers to start the firm. That's amazing. And, and what, I mean, you said you had a little bit of East Coast. Uh, it's always just interesting, right? So I was born and raised in Atlanta. I've always been been here my whole life. And, you know, I moved, I went out to Arizona State for school, moved out there, loved the West Coast lifestyle, and then moved back home. I mean, there's always that sense of home is why you're always attracted back. But, you know, to, to some of those that maybe are, are Southeast listeners or East Coast listeners, I mean, what is the draw that you love so much about the Southern California lifestyle? I mean, the weather, of course, we get that. But what else is the draw of just the Southern California lifestyle? There's so many <laughs> there's so many things about California that are wrong. Southern California, especially the traffic and the taxes and everything else. But it is. It's the weather. We were so scared to move to New York because of the winters. You just everyone. Oh, my God, you're going to have to you're going to have to actually buy a coat. man. <laughs> I didn't even own a winter coat at the time. It was actually the summers. And I can't complain to you being in Atlanta, but it was the it was the New York City humidity that I just, I was like, okay, we're out of here. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't deal with, I loved walking to work every day. You know, again, being from Los Angeles, that was so much fun to walk. We were at 66 and first, and I'd walk to 50th and third every single day, and I loved it. But in August, 
you know, in, in January, I could put four coats on. I couldn't go naked in August down, <laughs> down third Avenue. So in the, this drenched pouring, you're, you know, taking pouring. A, you're taking a book bag with like 15 layers of clothes or 15 different changes of clothes for all the different walks, because you're just going to be drenched by the time exactly. you get there. I, I get that. You, you go out for a walk right now in Atlanta, you're changing and taking a shower because it's, uh, it's sticky to say the least. And, yeah. you know, I, I always wondered, you know, with the difference between New York and then we'll, we'll hop into what really matters here on this podcast. Yeah. But this is uh, interesting is, you know, the, the mentality that you have, right? Because the weather is so great so much of the time, have you seen just a change in like your attitude, your mental state, your ability to think and innovate? I mean, have you seen a difference or is that kind of, is that just kind of hyperbole from, from some of the other headlines? So it was, it's all, I'm actually going to tell the story going the other way. Moving to New York, I went a couple weeks early. Reese was still kind of finishing up her job and kind of closing things up and stuff. So, so I went, I think I was there for, I don't even know if it was a full week, six days. I mean, living in New York by myself, she comes out, she still wasn't moving full time yet, but she comes out to help on, I think the movers were showing up six days. I've been in New York. She arrives, you know, she's on the overnight flight. So she arrives in the morning and I say, well, let's go to breakfast. She says, great. I take off. She can't even keep up with me. She's like, where are you? Why are you moving so fast? I, in six days, <laughs> your surroundings really do. You don't even know it. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> She's like, I, I've never seen you move this fast in your life. I just six days of living in, in Manhattan around the hustle and bustle. And I was moving fast. So it's I think it, it is mostly subconscious. But yeah, I think being back here just it helps you just adjust a little bit better. And, and you get back, you get into that slower lifestyle here. Yeah, there's something to be said about that slower lifestyle, right? Because I always talk about, you know, during the pandemic, you know, if you're trying to find a silver lining, right, the simplicity of life that was there, right, it was a challenge for many people, but the the, the demands on life were, were smaller, right, just to stay at home. And it was a mental challenge that we had to overcome. But, you know, with that simplicity and kind of that slowness of things, you were able to go deeper in thought and, and have more kind of holistic thoughts. And there's something to be said of that as opposed to moving from just one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, yep. and not having that, that time. And, you know, there, there's, you know, I think that we can learn, you know, that mentality we, I saw firsthand over the, you know, the 10 months of lockdown and the pandemic that we had where we weren't doing anything. I was able to get really deep thought. And now we're back up to speed, back to normalcy, basically here in Atlanta. And I'm just back to back again. Right. And you have, you miss that time. Yep. So there's definitely something there, which is so interesting to have. So, you know, I, you know, we met and connected just from me reading an article that you wrote on wealthmanagement.com, which was amazing. And I, I consider us continue just building a relationship, which has been amazing. And uh, I'm so lucky to have you here on Bridging the Gap for our listeners. You know, one of the things that I always like to ask guests when they come on, and I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. I'm, I'm sure you know Simon yeah. and the, all his books and everything that he writes, but, you know, he talks about the his why, right? And, um, you know, what drives him. And I love the example that he uses with Apple and Dell and the comparison of how they approach marketing. And I'm always intrigued to ask, you know, the guests that come on the podcast, what's their why, right? What is the why that you have for what you're doing? I mean, and we're going to get into your experience. It's vast and amazing, but what's your why uh, of why you do what you do? Sometimes I say I stole it from Mark Tabergian. I'm going to say we've, we've borrowed it from Mark Tabergian. We're trying to continue his messaging I make this joke all the time. When I was 14 years old, my my hero was Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> but at 40 years old, my hero was Mark Tabergian. I love his messaging around this industry, and it's it's still continuing. It's still evolving. But we're going from practices to businesses, 
And our whole why around for PFI advisors, whether we're working with a breakaway advisor, starting a business from scratch, we're working with a buyer that's trying to be an acquirer and, hey, how do I build a platform here that's going to attract advisors? Or whether we're just working with an existing firm that says, help me be more efficient, help us be more profitable. It's all about, I think there's there's going to be, the, there's going to continue to be this evolution of we're not just three, four advisors under one logo. And we're just focused on on top line revenue. We're just focused on going out and getting clients. I think more and more firms are going to start really, They advisors need to make that mental shift from I'm a financial advisor to I'm an owner of a financial advisory business. And as much as we all talk about it, I still think the industry has a long way to go. And so that's really our why is just helping with that evolution and helping people think as a business owner and not just think, where's my next client coming from? Where's my next client? It's very important. Clearly, it's very important. But also thinking about career paths for your employees, profitability, not just top line, but but bottom line uh, efficiencies, et cetera. And it's like that, you know, it's it's the concept that we talk a lot about on this podcast. And what I write about is that idea of business sizing your business. And I want to dive into some of that because I know that you you just launched uh, the COO Society, which I want to dive into. Yeah. Uh, but before we get in there, I want to talk about the the natural evolution that you went to from 14 with Van Halen to 40 <laughs> with Diversion. I mean, what led to you getting I mean, if you're a Van Halen fan, I mean, what was it that you wanted to do when you were 14? And did you see yourself? creating and launching today the COO Society when you were 14? Was this the track? What led you to this path of where you got to now, which is amazing? You just stumbled your way through your career. I mean, I taught, so our COO Roundtable podcast, it, it is my favorite question. I always say, hey, give me your, your career trajectory. How did you wind up? And the joke we make a lot is nobody lays in bed at 14 and nine years old, whatever. I want to be the COO of an RIA someday. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not on your. It's not on your on your list. So what got me into into wealth management in general? I'll just start there. It, it's kind of funny. At UCLA, there was a sandwich shop that I loved, and I probably went there three days a week. And this is in the late '90s when the market was really going gangbusters. They had CNBC on every more every morning or afternoon, I guess, when I would walk in to get my sandwich, and I'd see the ticker going by. And I don't know what drew me to it, but I thought, God, I don't know what any of that. It was all fractions at the time. It wasn't decimals yet. And what is that? What I don't even know what that means, but I'm kind of interested. So when I graduated, I I got lucky and got a job at Merrill Lynch with no bigger goal than I, I want to know what that ticker means going by. <laughs> I figured Merrill Lynch will be the, the place to learn it. And I, I just got lucky. I, I a, a big hotshot team had just left Goldman Sachs and joined Merrill a few months prior. And that team, the four advisors were doing more business than collectively the 40 advisors that made up the entire Beverly Hills branch of Merrill Lynch. So operationally speaking, they had more than doubled in size. The branch had more than doubled in size. I had zero experience, but my job was be the operations point person for these hotshots. Keep them happy. They're frustrated. They don't know how to do business here at Merrill. They knew how to do things at Goldman. They don't know how to, who do they call for an options trade? Who do they call for a mutual fund trade? Just completely stumbled into this, worked with them for eight years. They decided they wanted to start an RIA. I had, didn't have RIA on my, on, my, on my radar. I had actually left them a few years prior to that, decided I was going to be an insurance salesman, <laughs> which was a horrible idea. They reached out to me and said, hey, we know you're, you're miserable being an insurance salesman. We want to start an RIA. Can you go figure it out for us? 
just complete blind luck. It didn't have it on my radar at all. Okay, I'll try to figure it out. So I had to figure out custody and compliance and phones and everything else. So built that, that became Luminous Capital. So then I, they, when we launched, they said, hey, you're the only one here that knows how to work the copier. Why don't you be our COO? <laughs> that was, you know, again, nothing, no grand vision here. So I became COO and CCO of a, of a fast growing RIA. We sold it to First Republic Bank. And I didn't want to go back to the bank world. So that's when I went to focus. And then, as I said earlier, we decided after a couple of years in, in Manhattan, we wanted to move back. And my wife, I've never thought of being a business owner, but my wife was like, hey, let's start our own thing. And so she really drove me. She was a, an advisor. I've never gone and gotten clients. I've always been on the operations side. But so long answer, no grand plan at all. <laughs> you just sort of stumble your way into these into these things. And And had we... Had we had we not had kids, we would have been very we would have loved the New York hustle and bustle and probably would have stayed there. And I would have stayed a focus employee. But with kids wanting to move back to that slower lifestyle, that that's how PFI came about. That's amazing. It's like the right place at the right time. Right. It, it's it's yep. always, you know, and it's just like taking the journey as you go. And I think that there's something to be said about that. Right. Too many people come into the profession and they think they have to have it all lined up. And I think that the lesson yep. there is that. Just let the journey take you where you're going and make sure that you're enjoying what you're doing and yeah. you're meeting people and you're you're doing the best you can. And things will kind of happen to the right people if you're kind of just letting the journey flow as opposed to trying to force in like, I got to be in this role for three years and then I've got to go here for five, yeah. right? Those just, I, I, you don't tend to hear those work out as well in this industry as they do it like that's a corporate america mentality where you're just trying to kind of work up to partner yeah and i think that that's the lesson and i love that i mean that's that's amazing now was your your wife was an advisor so did y'all meet at merrill then no she was she was a she was an axa advisor okay. and actually that was before i i met her she had moved into an operations role actually when when i met her and we we met the old-fashioned way we met online <laughs> blind date <laughs> Blind date. I told her a little bit. I mean, I didn't think she knew what you know Luminous Capital was or anything, but I told her, you know, I'm the I'm a COO and 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 most of my blind dates, like I wouldn't get into very much detail. She was just like, This is so cool. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and so she knew the finance side, she knew the operational stuff that I would, you know, was, was telling her about, hey, our phones broke woke, broke down today and <laughs> had to had to get that fixed, you know, with with clients calling in and everything. So yeah, it was it was just kind of fun the, the way we met and and again just sort of stumble into things, right? The timing was perfect for for the two of us and and blink of an eye, we've got two kids and we're living in in Manhattan. <laughs> That's incredible. It, it it's just a testament to like I said, letting the life journey take you along and you know, focus is an interesting thing. I want to talk about some of your time there because I think focus is, you know, if I were to be cheesy, is in focus right now. Yep. Uh, with everything that's going on in this industry with M&A and, you know, CI and all the funding and all the buying and, you know, what, where, where do you see that going? You had, I mean, you had a, a seat at the table there and you, you saw a lot of that. I mean, where is the end game for M&A and how, how far, what inning do you think we're in when it comes to M&A and, and these types of firms? Because I think they're doing great things, right? And it's good for, you know, estate planning or exit planning for some of these firms. Yeah. But where's the end game? Because valuations seem to be getting really, really hot right now. Yeah. Just the other day, Investment News, that was the headline was something like how high can valuations go? And I read it and I cringed. I went, oh, man, like the first sentence said, 
typical. I don't know if it's I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was it, I it, I interpreted the sentence as typical valuations are 18 to 20 times earnings. And I went, oh, God, please don't say that <laughs> because they're out there. But those are, you know, unique situations. That's the United Capital, like, you know, real, real businesses with, I mean, United Capital had a tech component to it. And so I was like, oh, no, now every advisor, you know, is going to turn down any any offer that's less than 20 times. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, the, the, the deal structure, the valuation stuff is not my forte. Uh, we're more on the operations side. But I didn't have M&A on our service offering list when we launched PFI in 2015. And I would say half of our projects right now are M&A related from an operations perspective. A, bu a buyer says, hey, I just acquired someone and I don't know how to integrate the two businesses. This is tricky. I'm, I'm on Adapar, they're on Orion. I'm on Salesforce, they're using Redtail, you know, whatever it may be. Can PFI help us think through tech? And then roles and responsibilities between the, the two firms, et cetera. So we're doing a bunch of uh, M&A related projects. It feels like we've got a ways to go. I know people are, are, are with capital gains rates subject to change very soon. They think there's there's going to be even more deals in the short term. And then does that slow things down? But it, it just it doesn't feel like there's a there's an end in sight. So I'm totally guessing, but it feels like, you know, maybe halfway, right? Fifth inning. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like that, right? I mean, it's 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 amazing. It, it feels frothy in terms of the valuations, right? Hearing eighteen to twenty, when you start putting that type of multiple in a service-based business, that just seems um, a little bit silly. A little bit silly, I would say. But I mean, I think that these these PE firms, right? I mean, this is a cash flow business, right? This is yep. a business model that can be really really successful for a PE firm to get some major returns. And when returns are hard to come by. With yields being so low, and and you know, you know, every there's a lot of trending towards private investments. It's hard. I mean, I think you're right because until you know yields start popping back up a little bit, yeah, this is a great alternative because it's a really sticky business that throws off good amount of cash, and it's a great return on investment for a, for a PE type firm. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't call Focus a PE, but I mean, they kind of are a PE type yeah. firm or a CI. And you know, I guess you know, what does that do? What does that do to our industry, right? Like, does that, is that going to negatively impact our industry? Does it positively impact our industry with all of this buying and, and merging and everything of that nature? You know, because I'm torn, to be honest, on my side of, you know, I think it's pro for, for some types and it's also a con for the industry because we're just basically building to sell as opposed to building right. to serve as we had in the past. Uh, I mean, where, what do you see it as on, on the pro con side of it? On the pro side, I'm hopeful that it it continues. Again, I'm I, I'm a broken record. The, the practices to businesses. It's it's. I think if advise again, you start a you know come out of a wirehouse, start a firm, three advisors, whatever. If you start thinking long term of hey, we may sell this someday, it's going to have to be a real business. And so I'm hoping that that just all the the opportunity to sell. And that dream of selling will professionalize a lot of businesses faster than they probably would have if they were just kind of chugging along. And, hey, we, we left wherever we left because we want to serve clients the way we want to. We want to market the way we want to. All, all the right reasons, but they potentially could never become a, a business, right? And think about the professionalization. So I'm hoping that with all the M&A activity, it will drive that a little bit more. Plus, if you professionalize the business 
with the your original thought is, hey, we, we want to, we need the highest cash flow possible, right? To, to, to be attractive. You've professionalized the business. Now the cash flow is so great that you can just, you know, live off of, you don't need to sell, but maybe it drives you in the beginning to, hey, we need to, we, let's think about selling. Let's have an opportunity to sell. So let's make this a real business as opposed to a practice. So that's the big pro. And then the con is just, I mean, there's so many articles about it and, and I don't disagree with them. The, the, the buyers of these businesses, these PE firms just completely turning over every three years, right? Is it long-term capital that, that advisors are selling to? I mean, you see in the weeds, right? You were at, at Focus for a little bit. And now you're helping firms go through that. I mean, the impact to the client, right? Let, let's talk about that for a second. Not a lot of people talk about the impact to the client. There's one side of the angle that says, well, the client, you know, they now have more offerings and more services. And I've mentioned that multiple times. But the, the transition period, I mean, do you, what are some stories that you've seen? I mean, like, what's the visual that clients that are going through this can kind of put in their mind if their advisor is going through an M&A transaction? And I think it's something good for advisors to think about, right? Because, yeah. you know, they need to think about the clients. I know that they're also thinking about, you know, sustainability for them to have a, a going concern. But what's the experience for clients that you've seen as you've worked with these businesses doing M&A? If it's done right, it should, the client shouldn't even know much, right? It's, it's even if you, if you're a Merrill Lynch team and you start your own RIA, there's a lot of additional things that an RIA can provide that the Merrill's can. And we've all talked about the fiduciary standard and et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the client has that relationship with the advisor and it really shouldn't change much. They, what they feel they're better. There hopefully is some, some added, you know, Hey, we've got a better reporting capabilities, whatever, but that's all around the margin. That relationship is, should still be the same. So that's whether you're going from like the wirehouse model to the RA, but then if your RA is acquired by a larger firm, whether you're, you know, then everybody's got different models, whether your logo goes away and it becomes the parent or not, or whatever it is, it, it should just come down to that relationship with the advisor, the client really shouldn't. And then again, if, if there is a, a, a PE firm leaves and another firm comes in and it's, it's, it is a bit distracting for the advisors, but if they're doing it right, the client shouldn't, it shouldn't be a big day-to-day -day something in the client's face. And it always comes back to the relationship, right? That, that's yep. what it's all about. This business is a relationship business, which is goes to why, I mean, the book that I'm launching here in the end of the summer, early fall is why the relationship is never going away, right? I think our industry was so fearful of, you know, the robos in the early, you know, early 2010s, yep. et cetera, taking over. And then this innovation that's happened over the past 10 years and people lowering their fees to try to compete with the free financial planning. It's the wrong way to go. It's an overreaction because if you take a step back and you look in, we're dealing with people and their money and yep. people and their money are emotional and the emotions are only handled by a human relationship and so yep. whether you're doing a transition to M&A or you're just serving one to one person if you don't have a strong relationship it's probably going to be really difficult for that client during an M&A transaction just yep. like it would if you didn't do an M&A transaction but if you have a really strong relationship well i think it should be okay because you built that bond and it's it, it should be stickier for you to go through and you know i love the spot that you're talking about because we're talking about business size in your business right and hopefully this M&A trend can help businesses really accelerate their focus on, on businessizing their business. I mean, my, the RA firm that, that I grew up in was founded by my, my old man, right? He had 25 years ago, uh, family-run business, and it's run drastically different today than it was when he started. And even 15 years in, right, it was run just like a, a family, like, hey, we'll just help out. But 
know, over the past, you know, eight to 10 years, we started to businessize our business, get processes, get structure, and it's been uncomfortable. And so firms have a lot of, a lot of challenges with that. And I, I expect that, you know, I, you know, that you're launching today, June 23rd, the, the COO, COO society. And I took a look at the site and the videos and it seems like that's what this whole, you know, what PFI is about and what the COO society is about is helping firms businessize their business. So tell us a little bit about that. And I'd love to know challenges that firms face with businessizing their business that, that the COO society and that y'all, y'all help with. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So our our podcast, the COO Roundtable, we do it once one a month. We're recording episode 31 this week. So we're two and a half years into this. And one of the things that comes up on I, one of the questions I ask on, on all the episodes is, hey, operations folks, whether it's the COO or director of operations or operations manager, whatever their title may be, where do you turn for education? The advisors can go get a CFP, can go get a CFA. There's plenty of sales coaching out there. But from an operations perspective, where are you turning to learn how to run a firm? And they've all said, well, you know, there's some books that I've read just about operations in general. And, and there's a couple of communities that, that I'm a part of and we can ask each other questions, which is great. But there isn't really an educational resource specific to the RA industry where, where we're learning these, these concepts. And so I've known all along that I, I wanted to create it. And then so that a couple of years, it's been in our mind and we've been talking about it internally here. But then, you know, we were talking about the pandemic, April of last year, right after it started, Inc. Magazine had an article that was said that said how how the pandemic will change consulting forever. And the article said you have to nobody wants you in their office anymore. But the other side of this, a consultant just sending a bunch of bodies to the client and sitting in a cubicle somewhere and creating a Gantt chart isn't the way consulting is going to go. And then the article said, if you don't have a subscription based digital solution that after your engagement is done, can kind of continue your relationship with the client, you're in trouble. And so I, that was sort of the kick in the pants that I needed to, okay, we're going to do this. And so we've created it for firms that that maybe are a little bit smaller and, and can't afford a one-on-one -on -one, uh, consulting engagement with us. This is a little bit of a DIY solution that they can do. But also I'm using the, you know, the beauty of building content is I'm using these courses in our one-on-one -on -one consulting, I'll say, hey, let me pull up a video real quick and I'll hit play on a, on a screen share. And, and so it's, it's, it's helping with our, our one-on-one -on -one consulting business, but it's also hopefully another product line for slightly smaller firms that are just looking for, again, we're, we're some advisors that know how to go get clients, but we're, we just don't know some of the concepts. One of the courses we have in there is just an overview of the tech stack. Another course is how to perform a client segmentation exercise at your firm, how to figure out who your ideal client is. Another one is org chart. Do you want to centralize all of your trading in the back office or do you want to be more in a team structure? We're working on the next one we're working on is key performance indicators to keep an eye on to, to constantly gauge the health of your business. So again, just that evolution of practices to businesses. This is online content that they can they can consume it any hour, you know, of the day or night, uh, weekends, whatever, and and get some RIA specific operations. I love it, and I, you know, the the KPIs that you're talking about. I, I read the white paper that y'all put out recently that yeah. talked about some of the KPIs and the CEO and their role, and it was all around this idea of business sizing 
the business. You know, there's some quotes in there from Mark DeBersion and, and, you know, the idea that founders, you know, have to, you know, they, they can't do everything. Right. And that's what it was when like my dad started the business, he did everything. He did the bills, yep. he did the billing, he did, you know, yep. he, he was the rainmaker for the firm. He did all of that. Right. It's just not sustainable in this industry. The maturation of this industry is, is a little bit behind. And the reason is, is because it's been such a, it's a, it's a nice business model. Right. And, and so I guess that gets to it. And, and that's a really interesting kind of question is me and you understand why, why we need to business size our business. But why does this industry need to business size? Right. Why do they even need to do it? They're doing fine. You know, they're, they're doing OK. Why? What's going to cause people to do it? Yes, M&A is maybe causing it. That's a hope. But I'm another advisor. Maybe I'm you know, managing 150, 200 million, like, you know, maybe even 400 million. Why do I need to business size? Like I'm good right here. What's the point? What's going to make me do it? Or is it just like you're just going to have this bifurcation of firms? What do you? What, what's your opinion on that? Very good question. Because I think when people hear us say that, they go, "Oh, they want me to be 10 billion." And uh, you know, oh, geez, I don't need to grow that much. And no, you don't. But we all talk about the average age of clients in this industry. The consumption of their portfolios means you better you you know you better be bringing in new clients and servicing them in an efficient manner just to stay even, just to keep your cash flow where it is because the older clients aren't adding to their portfolios anymore. They're taking out of their portfolios if you're an AUM-based advisor. So I think it's it's just, so it's, you don't have to be 10 billion, but I think working through efficient ways to, to, to allow you to service more clients, to, to have a consistent service experience for those clients, so that's what I'm talking about when I say, you know, business size is, is, is the way you say it. Business size, your business is have a repeatable service offering for a larger and larger number of clients. It doesn't have to be 10 billion. You don't have to have six offices and 47 employees. But I do think it's a good idea if you're going to start a business to to at least have some efficiencies and, and profitability metrics that you're you're tracking and 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 efficiencies that are going to allow you to add more and more clients without your first client feeling like, oh, geez, I'm not getting these amount of attention I used to. Yeah, it's all about, you know, it all goes back, right? We talked about it a little bit earlier. It all, you know, it talks about the the relationship aspect, and then it all goes back to the client, right? The client experience, it, business sizing, as I say it, or, you know, just creating standardization and processes yep. is about creating a standard of expectations because when you start getting ambiguity, you start getting frustrations. And uh, I think that too often we assume because we're in it that people are just going to understand what we're doing. And we're doing a lot. And in an industry where you have to show your value and it has to be beyond just the performance of the portfolio, you know, it's hard, right? It's hard for us to show the value outside of just the performance. And by creating a standard set of client expectations and client experience, you can maybe start showing your value despite what the market does, right? That's out of our control. No matter how good you are at picking investments, that's out of your control. And that's, I yeah. think, you know, a really benefit of, of business size in a business. I want to flip the script for just a few minutes and then we're going to wrap this up because you've got, you've got a business to build and, and great <laughs> weather to go and enjoy uh, out in California. Um, but I, you know, I always, I talk to just many peers in the space and I talk to others outside of the space. And I think, you know, part of this, the fun of this podcast is, you know, we have professionals inside the industry and we also bring professionals from outside this industry in. But I always think it's good to, to hear their perspective on some of the, the questions that I get from others outside the industry to, to see. Right. And you're talking about, you know, 
you know, businessizing the business, creating standardization of processes. And you've been in the space from Merrill to the own, your own RA and, and now kind of helping others operate. And I posted this out on LinkedIn a few weeks ago because I was really interested from an article that was written about perceptions of our industry, like the cost and who comes into the industry. In your mind, right? Just asking you, just as a friend, how if, if a friend came up to you and said, how much do I need to have to go to see a financial advisor? What's your answer to that? How much do you think that people need to have to be served by a financial advisor. I think that, that there's such a misconception about that. I thought you were going to say, how much do I need to have to start an RIA? So how much do I, okay, <laughs> from, from a client perspective, geez, it's a very good question. And I'm, where my head goes is, is when I went from doing my own taxes to hiring a, a CPA, right? <laughs> you just feel like I, I'm probably missing something here. So, and everyone struggles with, I don't want to be the, the, the smallest fish in a, in a big pond, et cetera, et cetera. But I think anytime there's, you, you start getting some complexity, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me compared to, you know, many of the clients that, that our RIA clients are serving were tiny, my wife and I, but without a whole lot of complexity, we've got a business now, we've got a foundation for our daughter, we've got, you know, 401k plans from from prior uh, employers and things. So I, you know, we're nowhere near an ultra high net worth client, but we need a financial advisor just because there's a lot of complexity. The numbers might not be huge, but there's the complexity is, is there. So I think it's more around complexity than, than the actual dollar amount. It's just when they're, when you start getting and then kids, of course, you know, we never even thought of life insurance until we had kids. So it's, it's I would say it's more around the, the complexity of your life than it is around the, the actual dollar amount. Yeah, it's around like it's a, I, I love that answer, right? It's it's like the it's the number of life events that you're going through, right? You're, you're buying a house, you're getting married, you're having a kid, you're sending a kid to college, you're retiring, right? Those are life events. Yep. And, and, you know, if you do it earlier when your life events are, you know, sooner than you have an ability to adjust and adapt. And it's not necessarily an amount of money because it was so interesting. Yeah. Everybody on that poll that I did on LinkedIn, everybody said, you know, it was over, it was like majority of, was it, you had to have over a hundred thousand dollars, but you know, a lot of people are having major life events before they have a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And the impact of an advisor can have during those life events is great. And there's always an, the beauty of this industry is there's an advisor for everyone, right? There's advisors yeah. that serve small, the mass affluent or exactly. Henry's, and then there's ultra high net worths. And, that's the beauty of it. And and so I, I'll, I'll wrap up with this question, right? You know, when you hang it up for your career, what do you want people to say about Matt Simon? It's such a cheesy answer, but the immediate, immediate thing I thought of is hard worker, honest, and I like I like everything in threes. Hard worker, honest, and credible. I love that. I love that. Well, I'll tell you this, just from me knowing you over the short period of time, you're hitting all three out of the park. So uh I appreciate you going down this conversation with me and, and just being raw and, and speaking your mind on this. And I hopefully everybody learned a little bit something I know I did. For those that want to kind of stay in contact with you, follow you at PFI or, or join the COO Society, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, everything. PFIadvisors.com. COO Society is there. The link to the podcast is there. And then we put out practice management articles. We've got our blog on our own website, but we're sharing practice management articles every day on LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can follow either my, my account or the PFI account on either one of those platforms as well. Awesome. Well, one of the best thought leaders in our space, honored to have you on this show. So thanks so much for your time and for, for the dedication to the industry. Appreciate everything you do. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 